Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Oxford Women in Business podcast. My name is Larissa, and I'm Oxford Sponsorship Director. It is my pleasure to be your host for this episode dedicated to the sponsorship team of the Society. I will be joined by Shireen Anis, the founder and CTO of Representation Counts. Representation Counts is a company that connects activists to corporations. They have been an Oxweb sponsor since 2021, having joined us to co-host a virtual coffee chat promoting the Representation Counts summer internship. Today, I will let Shireen take us through her career journey and discover the reasons behind the creation of Representation Counts. We will then discuss why representation counts in the current climate and how we can practice and advocate representation or activate change in our communities. Finally, we will address the role which education at the University of Oxford and beyond should play in improving representation. So I am now connected with Shireen. Shireen, thank you so much for accepting our invitation. I'm really looking forward to this very insightful and thought-provoking interview. Larissa, thank you so much to both you and your team. Um, I'm so excited to be here with you and to kind of discuss a lot of the climate, but also some of the work that we do here. So I will jump straight into our discussion. Um, could you please tell us a bit more about yourself, your educational and professional background? Yes, of course. So right now I'm the CTO, which is just the Chief Technology Officer here at Representation Counts. Um, I'm also an activist within my Canadian community. Um, I often also tread out to the United States. Um, prior to Representation Counts, I was actually the founder and CEO of a STEM education company called Kid Coders. Um, I started that back in 2015, um, right after I, I was no longer in school. And so somewhere in between, um, in 2019, I had sold it and then just purchased it back now in 2021. Um, which has been pretty exciting. Um, so right now I'm between two companies um, and I love it. Um, I love education technology. I love um, being able to teach people at a young age because I think it's a very powerful seed that you can plant um, to empower people to enforce change and hold accountability for our community and international leaders. Um, and so my educational background was quite unconventional. I started off learning um, business management organizational studies in the university here in Canada. Um, didn't quite like it. Um, I wanted more of an international experience. And, you know, with Canada being as small as, as it is with a very small population um, and with the startup of Bitcoin, I actually moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I enrolled over at Harvard Extension School. I did not complete a degree there. Um, in fact, I don't think I ever will. Um, uh, so I really admire everybody who has that passion. It's just not meant for me at all. Um, and then after that, I actually went to another school called Queen's University here in Canada, again, during COVID, once it striked um, and studied psychology. Um, at, at Harvard, I studied um, economics, by the way, um, and math and finance. And so with all of that, I actually have my academic background to credit for a lot of the work I'm doing today, both in technology education, as well as activism and advocacy. Mm -hmm. And it's actually quite um, interesting that you really have this unconventional educational path. And then it's sort of what you've mimicked with the companies that you founded. Exactly. You know, I think that there's a lot of people out there um, percentage wise and also statistically um, and a lot of stories and lives that um, don't necessarily follow the traditional path. So I think I represent that. And there's actually a lot more of those people and people like myself than we can realize in social media. Really a lot to credit for bringing those people's stories to service. Mm hmm. And of course, you know, at Oxford, there's always this idea of academic excellence and everything. But sometimes I feel like students here forget that there is so much more than that. And it's about, you know, being an activist in your community, um, creating change that is 
you know, that goes beyond the academical framework, actually, and, you know, being a human being. Yeah, you're very right about that. And especially, you know, I'm sure you can understand this being at Oxford with such pedigree, um, such such powerful um, recognition throughout the world. Um, you really have a lot of responsibility as young students, um, as thriving students, um, to kind of have that collective consciousness in instilling change wherever you go. Because chances are all of you are going to end up in very powerful and influential positions where, you know, your experiences, including the moral ground and the stories that you've heard from other people are stories that you can help bring and represent and help impact those lives in very profound ways. So it's very exciting, but it is quite the responsibility to take on with an Oxford education, but also other institutions as well, that, you know, you do have a lot of power in changing the world. Mm -hmm. No, that's true. And um, yeah, I think it's just so interesting to have this balance or maybe disbalance between uh, being an activist and being a student at the same time. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes it can be a bit difficult to um, juggle, but it's so important to do it, in fact. So um, I'm just going to circle back to representation counts, which, you know, will will be at the center of our discussion today. Um, How did it come about? And did like a specific event maybe trigger your idea? So for representation counts, it wasn't exactly a singular event that triggered or transpired representation counts. What happened was because I'd been such like an entrepreneurial spirit from a very young age, Obviously, the way that I grew up, which um, wasn't very privileged or even mediocre for that matter, like I grew up very low income, Um, not to say that, you know, my parents didn't give me everything. They gave me more than I can ever even imagine, even at my age right now. Like, it's just so well that they raised all their five kids. But, you know, the immigration story that they had and everything else there, I definitely had notable experiences in which either racism, systemic racism, which the two are very different things. Um, But related in very profound ways and, you know, discrimination, prejudice, um, lots of experiences that weren't exactly fun, (laughs) more inviting. Um, And you definitely felt um, isolated just because of the color of your skin. And for me, that always stuck with me and those experiences carried forward. And I always wanted to change a lot of what I had experienced to not let anybody else feel the pain of that. And for that reason, I'm actually grateful that I could experience those things because now I have a value system for any company I find um, that I create or um, a system that I invent. Um, All of those values and experiences are applied to it. And for that reason, I feel like, you know, not one one thing would have triggered it. It would have been a holistic experience of life in general um, that really inspired me to start Representation Counts and stand up for people. Mm -hmm. And... How do you advocate for change at representation counts? How do you work? Yeah, so um, for me at a personal level, there are a variety of ways how I make representation count or demand that representation counts. So oftentimes we do find ourselves and myself being litigious because when it comes to preparations, you kind of have to go that route um, in order to be heard in a profound way where, you know, impact and change will be taken seriously. In other ways, you know, protests um, also scaling the efforts of our values, um, activating activists who need the resources as well as support. You know, mental health is the number one thing for activists where it's the first thing to go. So we offer a lot of that support. Um, We hear people's stories and encourage them to submit it. Um, We encourage them to submit formal reports for any discrimination or racism that they may face. Um, And that's how we kind of support the activist community. On the other side, we take everything that we find in fieldwork, which would count as what I previously mentioned, 
and communicate that to corporations um, so that they can understand what the climate and environment really looks like so that we can relay authentic representation at a top-down approach. So to uh, sort of rebound on that, it's really great that you offer s- such a large scale or diversity of, of uh, services, really, because you work with corporations, but you work with activists as well. And so I think that you have quite a wide reach, um, which is, by the way, a really interesting word for Oxweb this term yeah. um, in terms of, you know, addressing, um, you know, different ways in which you can make representation count. Agreed, of course. Amazing. So obviously, in the light of recent events, such as the anti-Asian racist attacks, the Black Lives Matter movement, and even um, Women's Month that went really, really badly, in my opinion, I just think about Meghan Markle and the backlash that she suffered after her interview with Oprah that was linked to the fact she was a woman and also um, her, her skin color. Uh, undeniably. And in the UK, the murder of Sarah Everard, who was basically a young woman who was, um, you know, sexually harassed and and just murdered um, one night after walking home. And how can companies and organizations react to those matters? And by react, I really mean not only putting a bandaid on the wound or, for example, lay off an employee that was responsible for such incident, but really change the culture within the company. Right. So this is always a question I get in my field of work, and it is a very tricky answer. It's really not simple. The thing here is because of the complexity and nature of the issue, um, it is multivariable. And by that, I mean it's something that really at a grassroots level um, needs to be taken care of. So companies often are very quick to kind of grab a bunch of straws or loose ends in moments of crisis like these. Um, such as the Sarah Everett kidnapping and murder, the Meghan Markle interview, um, in which, you know, for one day, for example, March 8th and Women's Day, um, they're going to be performative and show some sort of allyship um, for like 10 minutes. And then any other day of the year, um, and this speaks also to Black Lives Matter, it's just not a priority. So for me, I think it really boils down again to education um, and representation. So what that looks like is, you know, hire people from a representative um, background. And those people are going to add pressure to your corporate culture um, in fighting for and making sure that representation is authentically being accounted for. So if you have people like women, like Sarah Everett, when that situation happened, um, there are actually going to be a lot more preventative voices and conversation in your corporate culture so that when unfortunate crises like those or situations like those occur, um, you've already been doing a lot of the back end work that is necessary. Um, to be able to facilitate and activate that change in your corporate culture and beyond. Because remember, as individuals, we actually have a very profound ripple effect with how we interact with the world. So not just at work, if you can recruit people who have a strong value system and morals and have the proper education, and oftentimes that just means hiring a person from that demographic, you're going to have a better representation of the problem at hand and therefore a better solution. So with our field of work, we always encourage corporate cultures not just to hire within their networks, because, again, often you see, you know, larger organizations, they'll hire a consultant within their very privileged networks. And that doesn't solve the problem because it's either racism or classism that you're kind of up against. So they might hire a person who is like black or brown, but they don't they don't really realize that racism exists within race. And so that adds fire to the problem or fuel to the fire because, you know, you're not really 
like addressing the problem at large. Um, and again, the colonial framework, assimilation, a lot of these problems come into play as well. And it impacts how you will react to situations like the ones that you mentioned earlier. So again, it is a very complicated answer or solution. It's not one-ended, but the best, most um, effective thing that you can do immediately within a corporate culture, and as students, you can demand this from your corporations. You really are powerful, and there's nothing to be afraid of or intimidated by in speaking up and demanding those changes that people from representative backgrounds um, show up and get hired for these positions so that it can have that ripple effect both in corporate culture and in their private lives. Um, because that's the only way we're going to really tackle this problem. Mm -hmm. And you've already mentioned this, but what were the things that really shocked you the most about these events? Right. So I think a lot of it is the disingenuity. You can oftentimes see that when corporations stand up for these matters during those moments, you can very much see that, oh, by the way, you should buy this product. And it comes off, it is very disingenuous, right? And so very inauthentic. And to me, that's always a sour taste in my mouth. Every time I'm watching it, it always makes me cringe a little because I'm like, you could have really done such a great job at handling this, but instead you're using your profit, the capitalistic view to kind of put a bandaid over the problem, as you mentioned earlier. So for me, that's always most shocking. And that theme and pattern, unfortunately, exists time and time again. I think over time, it'll change and improve. But again, it, it really comes down to all of us raising our voices and demanding from corporations what we want that to look like so that that shock effect is no longer there. Mm -hmm. And you spoke about, you know, increasing representation and hiring um, employees that have this activist sort of drive in them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously, when we speak of diversity in the workplace, etc., there is always the fear that people from ethnic minorities are reduced to a statistic. Mm -hmm. How would you sort of address that? So basically having a, an inclusive culture versus just hiring uh, ethnic minorities to look good on paper, basically. Right. So tokenization. Right. So the purpose of stat statistics and data is to remove emotion, right? Oftentimes that process is utilized for leaders in higher up positions so that they can remove the emotion and the human humanity from the decision that they have to make because there's often dire circumstances, COVID is one of them more than other, where you need to remove the human aspect in order to make very tough decisions. And for companies to be using that type of framework when it comes to hiring decisions is really not the right approach. And it makes the ethnic minority fall into a tokenization um, role where you know, now it's like, okay, we're going to pick one person. I always use Priyanka Chopra as an example because, you know, Priyanka Chopra now represents everybody in like Bollywood and Hollywood as the brown woman. And it doesn't do anybody any good because now that becomes the sole standard of what that ethnic minority one person is supposed to represent. And when somebody doesn't represent that framework, they're rejected from opportunity altogether. And so it really muddies the grounds of how representation can effectively um, be authentically represented. And so I really think that at the end of the day, don't like have like cohorts or like quotas rather, um, in which you're trying to just stuff as many people of color in there and then have a cap and then that's it. Um, really like there's, there's a broader stroke approach that you can take in which indiscriminately you can hire anyone and maybe even change how you recruit people instead of resumes with names, have numbered resumes. So you're not influenced by ethnic names, you know. I think that fundamentally, fundamentally and systemically, a lot needs to be changed um, with how recruitment is done in order to 
have that more justified approach of ethnic minority recruitment. Mm -hmm. And so what would be your, like the most important points, or let's say the starting points to take into account if we want to have unbiased and, you know, transparent recruitment? Right. So the fundamental points would be, first of all, I have noticed in my field of work is that often they're Caucasian people who are taking on the role of recruitment, right? And then that also introduces a lot of biases like um, stickiness. Um, and also when you recruit people, you want that relatability factor. You usually tend to hire people that you like. Well, you only like what you're used to. And if you are that Caucasian person um, who has probably, in most cases in my experience, when I do audits of corporations, is that you know they come from privileged backgrounds. So they're used to the private schooling. They're, they're used to certain cultures of always having money in their pockets or a parent's credit card. You're not going to be able to relate to somebody that otherwise never had that access. And so you're not going to click with them in a way to be able to welcome them in the recruitment process and hire them in the end. So I think not just having one person or five people responsible for recruitment, you know, be very careful with who you even hire for that recruitment process. And that's some organizations like ours really play a fundamental role in ensuring that it's as fair of a process um, and as just of a process as possible when it comes to recruiting a diverse and broader range of people. So I think that, you know, that's the seed there is just making sure that that recruiter is very open-minded and very diverse when it comes to their mindset that they can make those decisions. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So we spoke about tokenization. We spoke about bias. and another. Um, concept or element that we actually mentioned when we prepared this podcast today was um, covert racism and unconscious bias, actually, which are, you know, on the facts, quite different from explicit um, incidents of racism. So should organizations take another approach when fighting them? And maybe could you explain what um, covert racism and unconscious bias are to our listeners? Yeah, of course. So covert racism is kind of almost, I guess the best way that I can describe it is like behind closed doors in your mind, um, you have these racist feelings and thoughts, but you just don't speak of them. And unconscious bias, um, it's things that throughout your growth, um, you have developed these these biases in which you don't know in your subconscious it's embedded that the reality you have in your mind is actually quite racist. Um, and that could be totally unintentional. So oftentimes the reason why people are having these unconscious biases or these covert racist um, mindsets is because there's a lot of fear in actually speaking out the way that they feel. Um, it's why at representation counts, I always encourage, you know, like we listen to the white supremacists. We listen to um, the Black lives, we listen to brown lives, we really listen to every perspective, Asian lives, because at the end of the day, we need to understand how to deconstruct what society has taught us to kind of believe and accept um, when it comes to certain um, races being represented more. So what I think the corporate culture needs to do is be able to encourage people to speak up whatever opinion that they may have so that it can be um, talked about and encouraged. And, and in turn, like people within their communities can actually tell them why their mindsets are probably not the best mindset and try to redefine what they're already embedded to believe. So I think that that's one way of targeting that issue there is being able to make sure that people are fearless and speaking of their opinion, no matter how unpopular it may be. Mm -hmm. So sort of bringing out all of the information or all of the thoughts that you would have to really 
create a dialogue even and help people, you know, yes, I guess, um, solve those issues. Our members, so students of the University of Oxford, are likely aware of certain controversies surrounding representation, or rather the lack thereof, at Oxford. Um, when we look at the student intake, um, where there has admittedly been huge improvements regarding the intake of state school students, for example, uh, in the January 2021 admission cycle, 68.7% of the offers were made to state school pupils, um, which is an amazing thing for the university. But nevertheless, Oxford still has this elitist etiquette, and um, a lot of state school kids are actually afraid or even discouraged to apply to Oxford because they think that they are not enough for it. And how can institutions as grand and as historical as Oxford increase representation and implement change? Right. So when it comes to theater schools and to these prestigious schools like Oxford University, such as the colleges that were aforementioned, um, you know, I really think it's going to take the creation of a new system. So what I mean by that is a new way of collecting learner data and how people learn um, should be the type of feeder that Oxford looks out to in order to do these types of admissions and recruitment. So what I'm talking about is alternative schooling um, that a broader range of people have access to, um, because even some of these schools where the 68.7 percentage statistic comes from, um, they're pretty well-equipped schools comparative to maybe schools that are less um, acceptable in terms of resources. So I think when it comes to schools or universities like Oxford or even other universities, you know, Harvard, Stanford, anything that's as, as amazing as these historical institutions, they really need to start reaching out to alternative learning um, frameworks in which they can identify students that actually do have the learning potential, the skills, and the talent but are probably being overlooked because they can't access the schools in which the, the, the universities are actually looking into to recruit from, right? Because not at, like with the world's population over 7 billion people, um, all 7 billion people um, within learning age, let's say 33% of that, um, are not going to have the same access equitably unless there is something that is well-scaled throughout the world um, in which that data can be collected or those stories can be heard. And so um, I personally am somebody who's in favor of, and I know some friends who are in the space of creating alternative learning frameworks or systems in which those people can then um, collectively see where there is that talent to be able to compete at institutions like Oxford. Um, and I also think that, you know, with Oxford being the school that it is, it should actually be an ally to other institutions to be able to offer the resources and the caliber and prestige that it has um, and scale it out that way. So, you know, in, in North America, what we see a lot of that is, you know, Force Era, edX, um, there's a lot of these institutions participating in online networks like, um, like, like the ones I mentioned earlier. And so therefore there is this access to a broader range of students um, who then can be recruited into institutions like Oxford. And as we've been discussing throughout this entire podcast, that representation really is key in driving a lot of the change in our world. Because now when you have somebody with those ranges of experiences, they can contribute meaningful solutions that were otherwise unheard of, right? And maybe a man going to the moon can happen sooner, or COVID vaccines can come faster, or climate change can actually be stopped. Because now we have people that actually have those hard skills from a broader range of uh, demographics, ethnicities, what have you, 
Um, and, and they've been welcomed to the table to have that conversation and contribute to a solution that is very important for our world. Mm-hmm. This difficulty that learning is actually quite um, disbalanced throughout many countries. In the UK, for example, mm-hmm. some schools are you know, with, with students from lower incomes and then lower resources as well, whereas you have such great private schools. And the problem is that obviously the level of education or at least the level of support will not necessarily be the same. And like, I, like you said, I think it's a great idea for Oxford to actually reach out to those schools and work on, you know, supporting um, prospective students, because at the end of the day, it's also something that will benefit the university if great minds come out of it at the end. I completely agree. And you know what, I'll even add as like a last point to this this question is that, you know, when we even look at access and even like with lower income, whatever have you, there's so many other variables that go into how people perform, right? Mental health is one of them. Um, compatibility is another. Not everybody is a theoretical learner. There are kinesthetic learners that um, otherwise get in, I know, Canada, they get put into college, which then you don't ever have access to, you know, academic institutions where you could end up at a university. That's completely like taken away from you at a very young age, or it's extremely hard to get back into. So, you know, issues like compatibility, uh, mental health, physical health, like there's just so many different variables that, you know, if Oxford starts being a lot more open-minded in how it assesses these students for compatibility for their institutions, I think that, and if they actually mean it, I think that it'll be a completely different representation. Mm-hmm. And um, about, you know, education and also the sort of unconventional approach that you take at Representation Counts, how can one teach activism or teach um, representation? And at what stages should schools or even universities start addressing this matter? Right. So I think schools are a secondary step. You know, I think that exposure from a very young age, so it really boils down to your environment and who what you're born into, I think that also plays a major factor. You know, if you're born into a liberal family versus a conservative family, and then after that, like what environments you're being exposed to within your communities, um, you know, like um, urban cities oftentimes have a very different representation than rural cities. All of these things have very profound um, influences in people's lives and, and their growth factor. So I think that, you know, as individuals, if we can start by using the um, advantage of abundance that we have today with access from social media, um, that can actually help us educate at a seated level um, the people that are new coming into the world um, from young, young ages and have that mindset set into them early on so that when they get to institutions or or stages of high school or have you pre-recruitment for universities like Oxford, they know right from wrong or they know from their exposures at an early age um, uh, of diversity and like representation, they know when institutions aren't holding that framework and so they can call it out. So I think that, you know, um, as individuals, that autonomy is what's going to drive or that awareness is going to be what drives um, how activism is able to thrive in our societies and also not being fearful and asking for help or actually speaking what's on your mind. and. And speaking about injustices or speaking about the different issues that we face, um, I think removing that fear and that boundary is what is going to really drive the activist community to be able to implement a lot of the change and hold people accountable. Mm-hmm. And in terms of education as well, there is a lot of sort of discussion or um, about anti-racism workshops, you know, organized in the workplace or in schools, universities. And I've read an article recently that I've shared with you 
um, of our student newspaper, Turwell, called Anti-Racism Workshops Are in a Waste, They're Essential by Sharik Haideri. And it basically discussed and rebutted criticism of anti-racism workshops. Um, and I wanted to kind of know about your take on such workshops and maybe where some criticism may stem from as well. Yeah, so first of all, you know, like I think how Sharik Haidari had gone about writing that article, like I really did enjoy. I think he did such an excellent job of really hitting, you know, the nail in the coffin uh, with his approach to it and with kind of going against the criticism or the rebuttals that his fellow classmates, I guess, had, right? So for me, um, what I noticed is that, you know, with respect to anti-racism classes, they are necessary. But what happens is, again, we have to look at who's administering and facilitating those anti-racism classes to begin with, because, again, these issues aren't just theory alone or history. Um, it's really about experience and ensuring that that authenticity is there, um, that the people administering and facilitating have actually lived those experiences and can speak to those lived experiences in an appropriate manner. Um, because, again, when you just look at things in theory form, um, that's when I think a lot of people become skeptical with the value of those anti-racism classes. Now, I'm not sure really or privy of the information of who taught these courses in that article or at Oxford at large, but I do know that, you know, oftentimes um, people think that the anti-racism classes or that educational framework doesn't work because um, the theory is just so not relevant um, and not appropriate with how it's being administered because it is just theory at the end of the day. Um, and so I think that what's going to make these courses more valuable and more accepted is going to be the authentic representation of the actual people who have lived those experiences teaching those courses. But, you know, over at Representation Counts, these are very valuable um, educational um, approaches in which I, I really encourage corporations to take advantage of and to actually administer within their environments, but also at an educational level within an institution. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, also remove, as you said, this theoretical aspect that may be quite, um, yes, I guess, deterrent for attendees and really make it about the stories that people tell and the experiences they live through, even the trauma as well, and sort of really foster dialogue between, you know, what has happened, the lessons we can learn from it, and what can we do better the next time to avoid making such, um, like, behaving like that or maybe stepping in if such an incident occurs um, before our eyes. Yeah, exactly. And actually, just one thing I'll add is that also Sharif goes into that in his article, right? He talks about how, and I can relate to this because um, my mom is from Pakistan. He's from Pakistan. And I understand, again, it, it goes to show that, like, you know, within race, there's racism. And to the point that he had added, you know, that in, in his household, he was really just taught about being anti-Jewish, anti-Black, all these things. But then when he came to Oxford, he very quickly realized in interacting with those people how none of those biases or constructs from their society were accurate. And so, again, it goes back down to him sharing his story and his experience with dealing with the issue of race um, is and how he was able to articulate that, that that's going to have a profound effect. And as someone with a very similar background, um, I was able to relate to that and, and add validity to what he had to say. So that is just a perfect representation of why representation counts. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think it's quite interesting that you mentioned this because there's also a lot of um, students who are, um, you know, mixed race and who actually suffer, like do not um, feel comfortable in either of both environments because they really feel a bit in between. 
they do. And that comes down to the polarizing impact of the politics behind these racial divides, right? Um, in our political environment, um, it gets votes. And so politicians tend to divide these issues with segregating color. And I think that's where a lot of people get comfortable because at the end of the day, everyone's not a fighter or an activist. Everyone can be those things, but they aren't. Again, it comes down to personality and compatibility with the issue at large. And so for that reason, I think it is a very um, burdensome issue to be able to have that identity crisis in which you're like maybe half white, half black, right? And you're kind of like, where do I lean towards? It can be a very taxing thing on an individual. And it all comes down to polarizing the issue when it really doesn't need to be polarized. Because at the end of the day, human rights is for everyone. And so human representation is for everyone. And that's where we need to make people comfortable with human rights and human representation at large so that people don't have those um, those, those issues or those feelings of being left out. Mm-hmm. No, I think those are very um, important lessons to learn as well, is that we are, at, at the end of the day, all the same human beings. And we need to look at this community and beautiful community that we have at large that is diverse and extremely diverse and what is really the most beautiful part of of this world i guess and um yeah well i guess on that note uh we're just slowly going to come to the end of this episode um first of all thank you so much shereen for being a guest on this podcast but before we part um i would like to ask you two last questions um, the first one would be, what are the three essential values which an activist or an actor for, for change should embody? In my opinion, as an activist or social agent for change is that, you know, you really have to be unconditional with love, first of all. Um, and I say that because you need to be aware that it's not always about self-promotion um, and that it really is about being cognizant and sensitive to other people's needs and lives. And that's often going to mean that you're talking more about their stories than your own. And you're just gravitating towards them because of your own story. Um, Second to that, I will say, always be fearless with raising your voice. Your voice is the most powerful tool. Um, It's more powerful than water cutting through diamond. It's what brings change and really molds and shapes our culture. Um, And thirdly, I, I would really like to say unity is just the, the most powerful driving force. Um, find your tribe, find people who are like-minded, but also don't be cliquey about it. Um, be open-minded with being inclusive to all people and just being an educator throughout the process and also educating yourself throughout the process with maybe some biases you might have because we all have them. Um, those are the, the three major things I think I would leave the audience with. Mm-hmm. And then, um, obviously, coming back to our society, what advice would you give to women in business uh, specifically when practicing representation? So women in business are going to have a very major role with shaping this culture of representation. Um, Again, I would say that you need to recognize that power um, and you need to recognize the role that you play into shaping these discussions, but also the accountability measures that will be held for corporations that you will be interacting with in the future. And so for that reason, I would say be like completely unconditional again back to the same values that I mentioned earlier with who you welcome be mindful of the people that are out there because not everybody has grown up the way you have and that's such a blessing and opportunity for you to be able to learn from it and figure out ways how you can weave that into your work um, so that more people can be included and also make your work enjoyable once you get to where you want to go Mm -hmm. and you know maybe a really important thing would also be to perhaps encourage and foster create groups um or like women 
female networks within the corporation you work with, or for example, um, ethnic minorities networks as well. And then I think it's going to create a really good conversation with management because it will be affiliated to the company directly and sort of, again, like you said, change the culture from within and from the employees that the um, that management hires at the end of the day. Agreed. I think you said it very, very well. So I support that. Mm-hmm. No, thank you so much for that. And thank you for your very um, precious and relevant advice. And here we are. This is the end of our conversation today. It was a pleasure speaking to you, Shireen. I hope that it encouraged the listeners to become more interested in activism and most importantly, advocating for greater representation in the workplace at the university and beyond, actually. And you can get in touch with Representation Counts on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, at Representation Counts. And your website is www.representationcounts.com. And you can connect with Oxwib on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter at Oxwib, and also on www.oxwib.com. So, yeah, that's that for me. Again, Shereen, thank you so, so much for um, agreeing to be a guest on this podcast. It was an honor to speak to you. And I hope that this conversation really is going to foster change and create some sort of new ideas and inspirations with everyone who listened. Thank you so much.